and welcome back to Silver on the Sage podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin, and welcome to our first episode of March, the month of the spring equinox and hopefully warmer weather. Today, Zach Butler, known interpretively as Nine Pound, joins the show. From a scout on trek to a seasonal staffer and multiple PSA trek participant, Zach delivers an episode representative of that impactful Philmont full circle experience. He starts off by sharing his love for Zastro. He notes the anything goes cobbler creations, the perfect stargazing roof of the old cabin, and the importance of the rededication to scouting ceremony. Zach contends that the role of camp director is the best job on the ranch and that Philmont is the perfect environment for growing young adults, where problem-solving and self-sufficiency is demanded of you. Zach's backcountry leadership style was inspired by witnessing others choose amicable communication over accusations, which in turn has made him a better manager professionally. Today, Zach is a threat intelligence analyst, proud husband, and new dad. He recalls his favorite spot on the ranch as simply that of the backcountry porch. Instrument in hand, conversing with crews, and the joy of simply watching the day pass. Thank you all so much for being here with me. I hope you have a beautiful Tuesday, and let's hike on. folks i am here today with zach butler and zach you and i overlapped our seasonal time at Philmont on on staff and i also recently saw you out there for tim culver's celebration of life so it's good to see you again good to talk with you and i'm excited to have you on the show today yeah thank you i'm really glad to be here uh and thank you for for hosting the podcast and for having me on it uh i really appreciate it thank you where are you coming from tonight where are you living right now so I live in California, uh, a town called Sunnyvale. If anyone doesn't know where that is, it's pretty close to San Francisco. It's just a bit south of San Francisco. It's like right in the middle of Silicon Valley. Nice. Okay. Are you happy there? Uh, for the most part, yeah. I, I, uh, the houses are small and expensive. And, you know, having spent so much time in New Mexico, I, I, really, uh, I really love the big sky and like open spaces. Um, but other than that, yeah, there's a lot to like here. I mean, it's it's a really nice part of the country. The weather is great year round. Um, yeah, there's yeah. there's a lot of things that are great about this part of California. So I was looking over your Philmont resume of sorts, and um, I assume you've listened to some episodes. And, and typically, we like to kick it off sort of with like your Philmont origin story. How did Philmont come into your world? Other folks like to kick it off with a story. I ended up at at Philmont, uh, I think the way a lot of people go for their very first time, which is I was in the Boy Scouts. I, I am an Eagle Scout, though I, I don't remember if I was at the time I first went to Philmont. But I went to Philmont because my troop was going to Philmont. I, I was lucky. I had a really active troop growing up. They'd do some big high adventure trip every summer. And that meant pretty often whenever they, they got through the lottery, they would send a crew to Philmont. And so in the summer of 2003, I went because that's what 
was happening with my troupe. Like I, I had heard of Philmont. I uh, had like a really vague notion of what it was. Like I knew it was a place where you go backpacking and a lot of people said it was great. And then I went there and um, today, as I speak to you, I love Philmont. I mean, that's why I'm here with you right now. I adore the place, but uh, the, the kind of origin story there is I didn't like it the first time I went. Like I had, I had kind of a bad time the very yeah. first uh, trek that I took in 2003. So I did like the normal um, 12 day long trek, like completely bog standard, nothing, nothing really out of the ordinary there. Um, but I was really unprepared. I, I, uh, I can't do the math in my head to figure out exactly how old I was, but I was, you know, in high school and uh, I really didn't have a lot of like proper backpacking experience. I'd been camping, but like car camping with my troop a lot. And so the very first time I went to Philmont, uh, I got a packing list and just put every single thing on it in my backpack. And by the time I got to Philmont, like I had 55 pounds in that pack, which is way too much for like an overweight, out of shape, has not been on a serious backpacking trip teenager. Uh, and I remember like they have the big fish scale at the welcome center where you can, you can weigh your bags before you go. And I remember everyone hanging theirs and mine being heavier than everybody's and thinking like, all right, well, okay, that's fine. Like I, I play sports. This will go great. And like super wrong. And so, uh, <laughs> we, we get on the trail and, um, I was like, I was having fun. I wasn't like miserable every single day, but I was so tired and so sore. And what that really led to is, is, um, something that I've, I've learned to do the opposite of now from Philmont. But I spent a lot of that first trip just like thinking, oh boy, I really wish I was somewhere else. Uh, and thinking about like, oh, I want to be at home. I could like, I could play video games. I could like eat a pizza. I could sleep in all morning. I could like do all these different things that like, yeah, I enjoyed doing when I was home. Um, and unfortunately, I think that made me miss some of the really enjoyable, really magical parts of, of Philmont on that very first trip. And so once I finished the trek and got home, you know, I was home for like two or three days and I, I'm really grateful to, I guess, my brain for this. Uh, I had this sort of epiphany where I'm like, oh, I'm not sore anymore. Like I feel great now. And in fact, what I have with me are these really cool memories of like, I had never climbed a proper mountain before, but like we went over Baldy on that trek. Oh, I didn't mention earlier. It was trek number 34, uh, which was at the time there were 35 treks, like roughly in order of difficulty. So this is, I forget the exact mileage, but it was like over hundred miles. Uh, like my troop really went for it. Uh, and so <laughs> we went over the tooth and Mount Phillips and Baldy all in one trek. We went to the North Country and the South Country. This, of course, is before the Middle Country had had uh, burned. And so, like, it was, I was so exhausted and so sore. And I didn't remember any of that. And I remembered, like, again, standing on top of the mountain, I remembered, like, the black powder rifle shooting. And I remembered, um, even appreciated some of the more difficult parts of this, where I was like, oh, actually, I could do that. Like that was not easy, but I actually managed to like pull through and like achieve this, this actually pretty difficult thing. I managed to like find the grit to get through An another mistake I made out of inexperience was I tried to climb Baldy with way too little water. I don't remember exactly how much I brought, but like two quarts ish. Uh, and 
was just like completely parched by the time I got to the top. Never mind getting all the way back down. There was a snow drift on the back. So I like packed a Nalgene full of snow uh, and then like it melted and it was full of dead bugs and like just <laughs> mega gross. Uh, but, you know, we had our micropure and so I micropured it and that stuff must work because I'm here talking to you right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but afterward, you know what? That's a cool story. I had a neat time. Uh, I, I I really appreciated all that stuff once I got back. And so I sort of came around and thought like, okay, I should do this again. One, I'm a glutton for punishment. Like I just, okay, I'll, I'll try. I'll try one more time. But if I do, I'm going to do this with a different mindset. And I did. I went back in 2006. I was very fortunate again. My, um, troop was sending another group. And at that point I had actually, uh, I was over 18. I was in college, but they were like, Hey, we want another advisor. Uh, so do you want to come be an advisor on this trek? And I, I jumped at the opportunity, uh, and I went and I had a riot on that trip. Um, just absolutely loved it. Even the parts where like I was sore and miserable and wet and cold and like getting pelted by hail or whatever, loved it, had a great time. And, um, I don't, I don't know this person's name. I, I can only sort of vaguely picture them. But at the very tail end of that trek, we we're way down in the South Country, uh, passing through a Brayu, on our way to disaster turnaround, like on our our last day. And I was chatting with one of the Brayu staff, and he just sort of casually mentioned to me, like, "Hey, you know, you said you had fun. You're enjoying yourself out here. Uh, you should come work here." you could totally work here. And like, it had never even occurred to me that I might do that before that moment. I, I don't know why, like, it's kind of obvious, right? When you're in Philmont, you interact with the staff basically every day, you would think it'd be pretty standard to be like, oh, I guess I could do that. Never occurred to, to uh, uh, I guess I would have been like 19, 20 year old Zach at that point. Um, and so I thought about it and I was like, yeah, they do seem to be having fun and I, I like it out here. Okay. I guess I might do that. And then uh, I worked the uh, the following summer. So that was 2006. My first summer on staff was 2007. And it was the time of my life. I mean, it was it was that 2007 summer, my very first summer film I regard as one of the most important, like one of the most formative summers of my life because it took this experience that I like already enjoyed. And um, th there's like a fundamental difference being at Philmont on Trek and being at Philmont on staff. Both are incredible. I recommend anybody do both, but, but they are very different. And I just adored that first summer. I had an incredible time and kept coming back. And, and now, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of a rest is history situation. And so I even, I even managed to take that whole story about like not having a great time my first time at Philmont. And like, I would end campfire shows with that at Philmont in to try and sort of pay it forward and, and encourage, uh, especially the, um, the participants who looked like they were flagging or who were like, Hey, I'm full of blisters. Like I'm not having a good time here. Uh, I, I would tell that story at the end of campfires and, and really try and, and identify with them and say like, I've, I've been there. I know what that's like. And you're totally right. Your feet hurt a lot right now. And I bet that stinks, but, uh, there's, there's really something in it. If you just sort of pull together some grit and keep going, there's, there's so much to appreciate out here, uh, despite the, the painful blister. So keep going. That's a beautiful full circle. And your first summer was also my first summer, 2007, the, probably the most impactful summer of my life because it got me out there on staff. I never was fortunate enough to go on track. So I, I, I will do that one of these days. I will get out there and go on a PSA trek, which you did three of, which we'll get to. Um, but your first summer on staff, you were PC at Zastro, which 
for those of you listening, if you are unaware, uh, Zastro Cabin um, is no longer with us. It burned down. That was last summer. Yeah, last summer. Yeah, yeah, um, just last summer. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on all that? Was that hard so, to watch to go down? For, it I mean, was. I mean, it, it was really hard. The The Zastro Cabin is a very special, I, I guess was, still is, come on, a, a very special place to me. I loved that summer. And so there, there's there's so much that I enjoyed about being there. Um, we would joke that like it's the backcountry Hilton because not only does everyone live in the cabin, but like the cabin was so big, everyone got their own room in yeah. the cabin and <laughs> it even had like electricity yeah. in the cabin. And I just, I had an incredible time there. So I am very sad that the the cabin is gone, but like everything at Philmont, I mean, it's not you know, it's not the structures that make the place. And so if they build a new cabin at Zastro, or, or even if they don't, even if it becomes a, a camp with tents, like the the area, the, the landscape around it, having the Rayado River come right past you, et cetera, is, is all still going to be a great experience. I will say that I personally hope they do rebuild a specifically a cabin because I will tell you now, it's one of the best places on the ranch to stargaze. Uh, and if, if they're rebuilding it, uh, I recommend that they have the back of the cabin. So you may not know this if you haven't worked there, but the back of the cabin was very low to the ground because the cabin was sort of inset into a hill. So the front, everything was kind of at normal heights, but in the back, there was a hill rising right behind the cabin. So it was very easy to scramble up onto the roof. And, you know, this happens regularly, but certainly in 2007, there were like several meteor showers throughout the summer. And so whenever that was happening, we would grab our foamies and sleep on the roof and like watch the meteor showers at night. And it was, it was amazing. I mean, I, one of the best experiences I have ever had. And so, uh, whatever they do with that area, um, uh, it's going to be great, but, but boy, if you can sleep on the roof and watch the meteor showers at night again, you should do it. What what a great experience. Yeah. Hands down. Someone needs to make that happen. Was Zastro, when you were there, was the program still sort of the mapping compass and cobbler? Those are my memories. Yes. Okay. Yes. It was, it was three things. Land navigation, not just map and compass, but land navigation. We had GPSs and compasses. Thank you very much. We had, we had those like ancient GPSs that like today that you would think of them as looking like a Game Boy, uh, like an original old timey Game Boy from yeah. like the eighties or whatever. Um, <laughs> you couldn't, it, it like didn't even really show you a, a map. It was more, it just like showed you your GPS coordinates and then you had to refer to a map and like find, it was, they were, they were tricky to use. Modern GPS, much easier. Your iPhone way better than uh, those things were. But there was also map and compass and like, like standard orienteering skills. Um, there was also uh, a making cobblers, exactly as, as you said. Uh, that was really fun. We, so we would obviously would make cobblers basically every day unless we happened to not have a crew that night. And uh, the campers, especially the participants that had like been on trek for a little while, they were so excited for cobbler because, you know, they've been eating trail food and now they get to have something that like they make themselves. It's baked. Um, it's got a lot of sugar in it and chocolate and like whatever else. And so we would kind of let them go wild. Like they would make it. There was not only was there a cabin, but there was a separate cook shack, like just a cabin for the kitchen alone. Like that's why, it, you know, it's a backcountry Hilton. And so, um, We'd let them into the the cook shack, and uh, we had like the official cobbler ingredients, like cans of of pie filling and that sort of thing. But we would also tell them, "Hey, you know what? If you see something on the shelves in here that you really want in your cobbler, go for it. You want to stuff a bunch of Oreos in there? You want to put a pop tart in there? Like whatever. You want to put cereal? You want to put Lucky Charms in your cobbler? Go nuts. The only rule, the only like hard and fast rule we gave them was." 
whatever you put in here, you have to tell the rest of the crew <laughs> so that they know what they're getting into. Yeah. But like <laughs> nobody ever actually did, but I'd tell them like, hey, you want to put spaghetti sauce in there? I'm not going to stop you. I don't think it's going to taste good. Nobody ever took me up on that offer, but like <laughs> we just told them, got to tell everybody, don't give one of your advisors a heart attack. Um, <laughs> And so the crews loved it. We loved it. Uh, you know, when you make a cobbler every single night, one of my favorite things of this is the crews are always like really generous and happy to be there. And so they'd always offer a cobbler. And for like the first two weeks that you make cobbler, you might occasionally like have a bite of cobbler, especially yeah. if they made a lot and like they can't quite finish it. <laughs> Once you're like six or eight weeks into the summer, somebody offers you the cobbler again. It's just no thanks. Like yeah. I have seen and had enough cobbler to last, last a lifetime. And to like this day, I'm not a big fan of cobbler. And I think it's because of like 90 days, all the cobbler you can eat at Zastro. Yeah, uh, fair. <laughs> and then fair. The, the, there was one more piece of the program, which was uh, a rededication to scouting ceremony, which was an evening program, fully scripted, not like the like campfire shows that you'd get in a, a cratered lake or, or somewhere or Cypher's Mine, someplace like that. Um, but this is like a fully scripted thing, which is... Um, an opportunity for participants to think about scouting, think about scouting values, uh, and, uh, rededicate themselves to them. Oh, cool. That's a cool way. I, I remember hearing that that was part of the program and never really understanding what that meant, but now I understand it. So that's cool. That's like, um, almost like a vow renewal, like, I don't know, in a marriage yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. that is a good way to think of it. Like a, like a scouting vow renewal almost. I wonder if that happens anywhere else on the ranch now that Zastro is no longer with us, but that's a, that's really neat. Okay. So looking ahead, you came back for four more summers, uh, PC Poblano, PC Black Mountain, PC Poblano again, and then you finished off in 2011, CD Crater Lake. So you must've really enjoyed the backcountry um, and the culture of the backcountry staff. Yeah, I, you're, you're absolutely right. I loved the backcountry. Uh, I am very much a sort of somebody who who is like really steeped himself in that culture and it's the only place I want to be. Like I, uh, if, you know, if I was going to work at Philmont in a future summer, which I do hope to do, like it's backcountry all the way. I love the ranger department. They're amazing. The, the ranch would not function without the rangers, but I don't want to be a ranger. Same with, you know, the wranglers and everything else. Incredible respect for every single department at the ranch, but it's backcountry for, for my personal tastes. Sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm fully convinced that CD is the best job on the ranch. Quite yes. frankly. Amen. Um, yes, <laughs> yes. I absolutely loved it. Uh, and, yep. and you can see from those, in fact, that it's not just backcountry that I love, but specifically the interp program. And uh, I I worked interp every summer after that first one at Zastro. And uh, it's it's by far my favorite. Um, as far as things that are like unusual, I was I was thinking about that. So there's you're you're always called on to to like do or, or be part of things that, that you may not expect. I mean, some of the examples there that that I think have been uh, kind of impactful on me are like suddenly being called to help fight a forest fire. Uh, and not, not never like a really big one, right? Like they wouldn't have the, the staff do that, but like, Hey, there's a brush fire over here and like, it needs to get taken care of. And you know, you've got to take care of it because help is several hours away. And there's, there's like a degree of self-sufficiency that is, is necessary out here. But something, something that I think is, uh, unexpected that that I think uh, is an interesting story and is, is something that I think really speaks to uh, how much I love the backcountry is um, specifically in 2010, it would have been um, when people would come through Poblano, uh, I would joke 
that I am the cleanest logger of all time. And you know the the logging camps had hopefully maybe not anymore. I, I hope not, but they had this reputation for like the people working there don't want to shower uh, and like they're they're just kind of stinky all the time, et cetera. And <laughs> I would joke with people like I am the cleanest logger that there ever was. And like that would be that would be the joke. But there was a specific reason for that. And that was I love the backcountry so much that uh, before that summer, I'd actually had surgery like on my back. And uh, this we we don't need to get into all the details, but like it was still healing. And I wanted to be at Philmont so badly that I decided uh, like, okay, I'm going to go. I, I chatted over with the, the doctor. And he's like, you can go. You just, you, you need to be really, really clean to make sure that you stay healthy. Uh, and so that summer, I remember like getting up every morning and showering and showering before bed and like uh, doing the laundry, like sometimes even in the cabin, like with a bucket and your classic scrub board and stuff, I even made that like a little interpretive thing. I'd be like cleaning uh, my clothes out in front and everything. And it was, it was just this, this interesting experience. And, and I remember thinking like, I, I want to be there so bad. I'll do this. Yeah. I, I'm trying to picture. So 2010, you were a PC at Poblano. I'm trying to picture the um, shower situation there. Was it open sky? It is not open sky. Okay, unfortunately, okay. that would be magic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's it's closed. It, it was over by the red roof. I uh, surely they have moved that red roof by now. But there was, uh, I'd say, three hundred feet from the cabin, there was a red roof and a shower house right next to each other. Yeah, I I think most of the open sky shower houses have been done away with, probably. But uh, that was pretty magical, Bobia, and I remember that one. But um. Yeah, that's an interesting story that not everyone everyone could admit to being the cleanest uh, logger. I thought you were also going to say just like uh, logger, because back then, you know, the logging camps were um, strictly all male. And so I thought you were going to say like, you know, <laughs> the, the whole like frat boy thing. <laughs> there, that Yes, yes. That mentality did exist. And uh, among the many reasons that I'm very grateful that those camps are now co-ed is I think it will help with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah, there <laughs> was a lot of that. <laughs> yes, in excess. Um, <laughs> oh, you did mention I wanted to ask briefly because you said you you do hope to return back sometime on summer staff. What what would you want to do? What position would you want? So as I said, camp director. Uh, Just it is, anywhere? It is the best. Anywhere. I don't even care. Anywhere okay. on the ranch. Uh, <laughs> I love camp director. Like I've I've thought about it many times. And, you know, if I if I like submit an application and they're like, uh, <clears throat> hey, we we really we desperately need a BCM. Like, OK. I'll do it because I love the ranch. And if they really need it, okay, fine. But my number one choice by a mile is camp director. I I, um, I really enjoyed doing program. Camp director gets to do everything. They, they still do program. They still do porch talks. They still do like all the stuff in the back country. Um, but they also get to like set a tone for the camp, uh, which I think can be really valuable and which I think can, can help the whole camp um, like have a, a better summer, both in terms of like quality of program that they're delivering also in terms of like how much fun they're having and, and that sort of thing. And I think that, uh, some, some good leadership in a camp, uh, is, is incredibly valuable. And it's, it's something that I really enjoy contributing to. I think that's also true in terms of the participants. I mean, if, if a participant is having, um, some kind of, of significant problem, it's often the camp director who ends up taking care of it. And, 
being having having the responsibility, but also the opportunity to help uh, participants with what are sometimes significant problems is is something that I really enjoyed as camp director. Because you know, the, there's there's so many things to enjoy in the backcountry. Some of the like obvious ones are like if you do program well, it's it's just rewarding to do that. One of the less obvious ones is like if a crew is flagging or somebody's. Um, hurting or or maybe not even hurting, but just like they're just uh, sort of having a bad time, there's an opportunity to help them. There's an opportunity to turn that around. And and as I was saying in that story earlier about, you know, kind of not having a great time the very first time I went to Philmont, um, I see myself in those people. And I love the opportunity to sit down and be like, all right, yeah, I can see that you're you're having a rough one. I can see you know sometimes even you're requesting to be taken down the mountain and and not because like you're injured, but just because you're not digging it out here. Uh, and having the opportunity to help somebody with that and, and help turn that around and and turn uh, turn their experience around it and really give them the opportunity to discover why the people who love Philmont love Philmont so much. Like I like it so much that I feel compelled to share it with other people because it has been so valuable to me and I'm convinced it can be just as valuable to others. Kind of talking about the camp director role a little bit more, who would you say inspired your leadership style and and like what was the most challenging part? Yeah. So uh, one of the biggest influences on my leadership style was Tim Culver. And uh, there's a specific summer that I'm thinking of. I actually don't remember exactly what summer it was, but it was the summer where he was the bear researcher. And the specific reason why, I, th- I think it was 20, uh, 2008, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, but the specific reason was, uh, I remember he was visiting our camp and he was talking about how uh, it was so common for crews to uh, have issues with their bear procedures up on the tooth of time. There was like a problem bear, if I remember correctly, up on the tooth. And a lot of crews are really excited to hike the tooth. They don't have a lot of time. Maybe they see rain coming and they just drop their packs and go for it instead of like getting out all their smellables, hanging all their stuff and doing the whole thing. And this was leading to a problem bear up on the tooth. And he, he chatted, he, he and I chatted for a while about how he handles that. And, um, Specifically, he talked about how he tries to approach this from a position of understanding what this is like for those crews and, uh, you know, just talking it over with them, um, trying to uh, help them understand why the um, why the bear procedures are so important. And, and one thing that he said that, that really stood out to me uh, and that I still remember is he said, you know, for a lot of these people, especially the participants who are mostly about high school age, uh, this is probably the first time in their lives that they've been in a situation where there's like a real safety component to the stuff that they're being told to do. Cause like you go to high school and I, I don't know, you could take a simple example. Like you're told to line up for lunch. Why do you line up for lunch? Well, cause you want a little less chaos outside the cafeteria, but realistically, if a bunch of high school kids just mob the cafeteria and don't line up, nobody's going to be seriously injured by that. Right. Even though you're not following the rules or whatever. And it's different at Philmont. Like there's, there's some real responsibility there. there. There's a real potential for either being harmed yourself with, uh, uh, not doing your bear procedures correctly, or what is actually more likely harming the bear and and therefore harming Philmont because bears are part of Philmont. Um, and that I think was a really useful, instructive way to think of this, to, to approach this with empathy, to approach this with understanding and just to, to not just be like, oh, they can't figure it out. The, these, these dum-dums, let's all get mad at them. Like that's not the correct way to, uh, 
help with where somebody is is uh, struggling with something, even something that's really important, even something that they have been trained on. You know, everybody gets their ranger training. They have been instructed how to do this right. Um, but approaching it in that way is incredibly valuable to the participant. I think they're much more likely to do it right in the future. They, I, I think it, it results in really like an amicable uh, resolution to this kind of problem. And it's useful everywhere. Like it's useful, not just at Philmont with bear procedures, but like it's useful in your personal life. I My daughter's very young right now. She's four months old, but I fully expect it's going to be useful with her in the future. I use that at work professionally. I use it everywhere. And that that kind of of mentality. Um, I, I even got to use it at Philmont. I remember that summer we had a crew that went to uh, climb spar poles in our camp. And for bear procedures, they just kind of didn't do them. Like they went to their camp, they, they just dropped what they were doing because it was their time to go climbing. Uh, and a ranger who happened to be walking through, walked through and was like, their packs are just lying here. Like they didn't do any of, they didn't hang anything up. Um, and so he, he came to the cabin, the ranger came to the cabin and told us about it. And so, um, I volunteered having had this conversation with Tim recently, I volunteered to be the one who would go like chat them through their bear procedures and, and try and correct this. And I think it went really well. And I, I did my best to kind of channel, uh, that, that management or maybe that education style. Uh, and I think that that was so useful. I still use it. I still think about it regularly. Like every time I'm, I'm helping somebody correct something that's not going as well as it could be. I, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, what would you say was the most challenging thing for you at Philmont in general? Professionally, as, as somebody who works at Philmont, the most challenging thing was managing friends um, as a camp director. That's really tricky because you become friends with people, especially if you've been there a few summers, <clears throat> you start to know a, a generous amount of the staff and you'll probably try very deliberately to work with people that you are friends with in, in the same, uh, camp. And, uh, it's, it's a, being a manager of, uh, somebody for like three months where you live together every single day. And, you know, there's stresses that come in the backcountry. There's so much of it that, that is like really fun, but there's also things that are stressful um, and things that are like genuine hard work. Like nobody wants to do the dishes, but you got to do the dishes. Uh, and handling, handling all of that in a way where the camp not just delivers great program, but like is also clean and well-functional and everything. And like, you're doing all the things that nobody really wants to do, but you've got to do them. That can be tricky. And, you know, there's, there's, I look back to my time as a uh, camp director and I think one, it was very valuable. I learned a lot from it, but I kind of learned a lot from it because you can learn a lot from a mistake. Uh, and I, I think that I am today a much better manager as a result, but it, it was, you know, it's, it's tricky. It's hard to, to be the friend of somebody who you also like, it's their turn to do the dishes and they don't feel like doing it. And like, we got to get this figured out. Sure. Yeah. It's definitely an interesting dynamic. It's, you know, yeah, you're thrown into the backcountry with people from all over and it's like, all right, get along and sort of be like mini homeowners and uh, do program and maybe, yeah, I mean, and maybe put a fire out or go save a life. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. like I love, I love saying you're like mini homeowners. Cause like you're even doing maintenance, right? Mm -hmm. Like something breaks. You, you can't always have somebody else come up and fix it for you. Like you, you do maybe even like a little bit of plumbing, maybe like hanging a new door hinge or, or hanging the entire door or whatever. Uh, there's, there's a lot of that in the back country and, and that kind of, self-sufficiency is actually one of my favorite things about Philmont. I mean, I really, 
I feel like working at Philmont provides this kind of perfect environment for people that are, are the age of most of the, the seasonal staff, which is, you know, college. Um, because you're, you're in this environment where self-sufficiency is demanded of you and help is not immediately available. Like you need to resolve these problems on your own. And yet there is help available if there's a serious problem. Like you're not, you're not truly alone and uh, you can receive assistance. So it's this kind of controlled environment in which these uh, young adults who are like, like becoming more independent, they're probably not living with their parents for the first time. They're, they're sort of uh, uh, becoming like fully functional adults um, get this opportunity in this more controlled environment to be self-sufficient. And I think that that's actually one of the best things about Philmont, specifically for people in that phase of their lives. That was really well, well spoken. I agree. Um, do you want to pick a summer to like share a story from or a favorite summer? Yeah, there's uh, one of a couple of my very favorites. So I, I said that the summer 2007 at Zastra was like formative to me. And I look back on it really fondly. And w- there's a specific moment that I can look back on where I remember thinking like, oh, this is amazing. Like we, we, we now have some like, um, independence is like once the summer really gets rolling and, and the camp is functioning well, like we're, we're really having some fun. Uh, and like, this is an amazing experience. And specifically that summer was, uh, a summer with, with good rain. So like the Rayado river was up high, um, <clears throat> and it was like green and lush and gorgeous everywhere. And there was a bunch of rain up Canyon. So, so Zastro is down the Canyon from fish camp. So there was, uh, a bunch of rain up Canyon, like over by fish and, and further West. And one of our PCs goes to our manager and is like, let me go into town. I'm going to buy some tubes and we're going to tube the Rayado river. <laughs> and we're like, that is, that is, that idea is insane. And it also sounds incredibly fun. Go do it. Try not to take too long. So he goes into town. He buys like tire inserts. These are not, these are not like pool toys. These are like the thing, the tube that goes inside a truck tire, <laughs> inflates them, rushes back to camp. And he's got like tubes on each arm. And meanwhile, we're all like, we're all getting hyped up for, for our opportunity to tube the Rayado. And so, um, where like we've, we've gotten out, we didn't have swimsuits, but like we got out shorts and stuff to try this in and it worked. Like we, we would hike, we hiked up the Creek a little ways, hopped in and then tubed down the Rayado. And one of my, one of my favorite moments here was, uh, there, there was a, and I, I think the statute of limitations is up on this. So there's a crew coming down the trail and I'm in a tube floating <laughs> down the Rayado, having the time of my life. And there's the trail goes right next to the Rayado. Uh, and this crew walks past and I just wave. They're like huffing and puffing. They're hauling these heavy packs. They're sweating and everything. And I'm just like in the river, gently floating down back towards the cabin, uh, just having the, the time of my life. I, I mean, what that I think is emblematic of that summer. We had the, the person who did that um, was like a real free spirit type who like would get an idea and then just go do it. Uh, and that I think was probably the best idea that person had all summer. Yeah. I'm so jealous. That's beautiful. Oh my gosh. How long were you floating just for fun? Like how long did it, did you float? I, you know, I don't know several minutes. I mean, we, we just walked up the Rayado and then hopped in and did that. So I, 
on the order of, of five to 10 minutes, something like that, you know, not super long. It's, it's a slow, I mean, it's really a Creek more than a river. Like it's not that fast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just a leisure. You, you, you walk faster than it flows. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing of beauty. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and while we're on the topic of just beautiful moments at Philmont, things you miss, um, favorite spot on the ranch, just anything kind of fun you want to throw out. Yeah. My, my favorite spot on the ranch, uh, is the porch. Uh, I adore sitting on the porch, especially in a rocking chair or a swing, but I'll take a regular chair if that's what they got. Um, and soaking it in. I mean, one, just watching the day pass, watching the clouds roll past, watching the weather change over time. But specifically, I love interacting with crews. And honestly, one of my favorite bits of program to give is is not something that you would immediately think of as program, but just porch talks, like welcoming a crew to the camp, saying hi, orienting them to everything that's there, hopefully having some some like uh, silly jokes or something to to help them uh, relax after all this this hiking and everything that they've been doing all day. Um, and especially sitting there and plinking away on an instrument. And uh, one, it's fun for me. Two, I hope, you know, as long as I'm good, which I'll let others decide, uh, it's hopefully providing like a really nice ambiance for the camps, especially at an interp camp. I, I feel like there's something really neat about walking up and having somebody sitting there playing the banjo or the fiddle. Um, so that's where I want to be. I want to be on the porch. I want to interact with crews directly. And, and I want to have an instrument with me. I believe your wife, Sarah, did work at Philmont. Did you meet her there? She did work at Philmont, though uh, we did not meet there. So the way that ended up happening is um, it is true that I met my wife because of Philmont, but I did not meet her at Philmont. And so I worked at Philmont that first summer, uh, 2007. And on my first set of days off, I really wanted to see a lot of the ranch. I wanted to like make friends and and just explore. So um, I did a lot of hiking on my days off, visiting other camps. My very first uh, set of days off, I uh, hiked through Crater Lake and spent the night there on my way back to Zastro. And I loved it. Uh, it was it was incredible. The crew there that summer was really good. They, they were musically talented. They were fun. They were funny. Um, and I loved watching the show that they did uh, and also just spending time with them. And on every set of days off for the rest of the summer, I spent the last night before returning to Zastro in Crater Lake, uh, just spending time with them. And I liked it so much. I didn't play an instrument at that point. Uh, and I liked it so much that I was like, well, I guess I could probably take up an instrument. Uh, but I also probably ought to learn how to sing a little better. Uh, and so I went to college. I went to, uh, Suwannee, the university of the South located in Tennessee. And I went and joined like a choral singing group. And I met Sarah, my now wife, in that group. And I was there specifically, not because I was I wanted to sing in a choral group specifically, but because uh, I wanted to be a better singer for Philmont. And so as our relationship was developing, I told her, you know, if you really want to understand me, then you need to come spend a summer at Philmont. And she did. Uh, she worked at Ponyol in 2010. Uh, she had a great time. Um, she was going to work in 2011 as well, but then some stuff happened and, and she couldn't make it. Um, but that summer in 2010 was really great because I was in Poblano. She was in Ponil. That's nice and close to each other. So we could, we could visit each other. Uh, and it was, it was great. Yeah, that's, that's cool. I like that. Um, okay. So hop forward to 2014, 
That was your first uh, PSA trek you went on, and then you also went on one in 2019 and 2021. So um, tell us a little bit about that. Were you going with groups of people that you like put together beforehand, or were you just joining a random group of, of PSA folks? I was just going with with random folks, uh, and it's awesome. For I'll, I'll totally I'll sell. I mean, if if you are listening to this podcast and you're part of the PSA, which I imagine the the Venn diagram overlaps a lot, uh, go on a staff trek. They're amazing. It's a it's a trek at Philmont. I'm and and uh, it's like bite size. It can fit hopefully into most people's vacation schedules. Uh, it's not as much of a commitment as like a big 12 day trek and you don't need to know anybody. You can, if you want to show up and like bring a bunch of friends, uh, but you can also just throw your name in the pot and end up with whoever you end up with. And I've, I've ended up friends with these people. I'm, I'm really actually very happy that I've gone with people that I've never met before. It is a different dynamic than a normal crew because you know, normal crews, they get together hopefully starting like January, February, March and like start planning out the logistics of the trip. Who's going to carry what, um, how do we get along? Who do we want to tent with? Uh, and meanwhile, if you show up for a PSA trek with uh, people you don't know, you often show up and it's like, all right, everybody grab a tent, buddy. Uh, and <laughs> we're going to do our best to get along. But that's, you know, it's no harder than living in the backcountry and meeting your staff for the first time being like, all right, we got to get along. Uh, and it's it's fun. You also get to that you don't have fixed. Uh, well, you, you have a fixed itinerary, but you get to plan your fixed itinerary. So it's you're not picking from the same itineraries that other participants are going on. So you can totally say, as as I have done, uh, the music program is my favorite thing in the backcountry. We are going to see as many shows over the course of this trek as we can. Uh, and we're never going to spend the night in a trail camp because we want to see staff and, and be with uh, backcountry PCs as much as we can. Or you could do the opposite. You could say, okay, we want to be under the stars alone and stay in a trail camp every night. You, you could plan it the way you want. Um, but that's an opportunity that that most people don't get. And the, the treks are really fun. So I strongly recommend going on them. Awesome. Yeah, that's my... That's my bucket list for like my next birthday or anytime I can like sneak away from my uh, three kiddos, <laughs> find childcare to go run through the mountains. One of the things that, that's really important to me about Philmont and and given how much I, I love the place is I want people behind me to have the same opportunities that that I had. And so it's really important to me that when I'm there on a staff track, I am there as a participant to see what people are doing and let them have their own fun and be their own people and do things the way that they want to do things. I really don't want to be the kind of person that shows up and is like, well, in my day, we did it differently than, than this. Um, I, uh, and, and, and I think that's actually one of the most enjoyable things about the staff tracks because that is, uh, that is my dog behind me. His name is Rayado, by the way. Oh, perfect. Um, and he is, he is chewing a squeaky ball. Okay. Uh, but anyway, being being out in the backcountry and uh, seeing the way that it changes and evolves over time, I think, is one of the the neater things about returning now because Philmont does change over time and it should, you know, hopefully it gets better every single summer and, and things that uh, we could have improved on hopefully get improved on. And I really enjoy seeing um, how the, you know, the, the, the young people of today choose to, to run the camp and handle themselves out there. So there, there is a story there uh, okay. that I'm, I'm happy to tell. So my uh, uh, now wife, Sarah, and I, uh, when we were working together at Philmont, we tried to climb over the Tooth of Time. Um, and we climbed, we hiked Tooth Ridge, but we were chased away from the Tooth proper by lightning. 
And so for this 2021 trek, we decided, okay, Sarah's never stood on the two at the time. I've stood on, I don't know, five times or something, um, but Sarah's never stood on it. So we got to do this. So we engineered the trek so that we would be going over the, the tooth on our last day as, as most crews do. And uh, we did it. We got to the top of the tooth. We, we were not chased off uh, at that point in the day by lightning. Um, but one thing that, that ended up happening that I really uh, think is, is, I mean, it's an experience, right? Like, is it fun? It's type two fun. It's something that's fun later, but not at the time, um, <clears throat> is lightning did roll in after that. And only twice in my life have I been somewhere where the thunder is so loud because the lightning is so close that it can almost knock you over. Like it, like you see everyone duck very suddenly as, as the thunder rolls through and it's just ear splittingly loud. And that happened to us on the way down the tooth. And I, I thought that was interesting one, because previously we'd been chased off the tooth by a thunderstorm. But two, because I remember explaining that kind of experience to Sarah uh, and you can't really do it justice when you explain it. It's something that you really have to experience. And it, it also plays into what I was talking about earlier. I was saying there's like a degree of self-sufficiency uh, and a degree of just sort of realizing when you're committed and when going forward is the only way you can go. Uh, that, that happens at Philmont. And that's one of those moments where it's like, okay, the lightning is hitting very close. There's zero seconds in between the flash and the boom. Um, and our only choice, like the safest, best thing we can do is is keep going and get off this mountain. And it's a heck of an experience. I mean, I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that like, it's fun at the time, but it's one of those things where you look back and you're like, that was that was kind of amazing. And it's uh, it shows what you are capable of uh, when when it comes down to it. I'm glad you guys made it up there uh, and made it down safely. Um, today, um, like you mentioned before, I think I pushed play. I believe you work for Google. Is that right? I do. Yes, I work for Google. Okay. Do you want to share it all about what you do or do you not want to talk about? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. So <laughs> I, uh, I am a threat intelligence analyst. And what that means is I work on a team that is tasked with understanding the most advanced threat actors that threaten Google and our users. Um, that generally means uh, governments, nation states, but not always. Um, and we we want to understand their activity, understand how are they trying to uh, harm Google users? How are they trying to harm Google? How are they trying to get into our systems and stop that? Um, and my specific specialty on this team is with uh, what we call information operations. That is where um, somebody maliciously wants to try and uh, change often the outcome of like an election or something like that, spreading disinformation. Um, and so I, uh, I track threat actors in that space and, uh, we, we do our best to, uh, uh, stop that kind of activity as quickly as possible. Oh, wow. Interesting. What would you say is like the most common misconception about someone who does your type of work? Yeah, I think, um, one of one of the things that's I think difficult about information operations is uh, there's a lot of discussion about it, uh, like in in the public sphere. Um, but I think a lot of that discussion may not be productive. It may not be grounded in like what's really happening out there, uh, and and may not be grounded in like what uh, are the the actual capabilities and things uh, in this space and and what's actually causing harm. 
Um, and you know, like, like I imagine almost anything, once you really become an expert on something, you, you start to see, uh, the parts of it that are the most important and the parts of it that get talked about the most. And those are not always the same thing. What are you excited for, for the future? Are you excited to, obviously you've got a four month old, which is exciting, uh, kind of future plans considering the ranch or the PSA. Yeah. So my goal is to, to keep going back to Philmont as often as possible, like until I can't walk anymore. And so, uh, that may be this summer. I've, I've got some plans, which, which may result in me going back this summer. We will see. But then with, uh, with my daughter, one of the things I'm most excited about is playing music with her. And that's something that I got from Philmont. Like I said earlier, I, I didn't play any instruments before Philmont today. I play the banjo and the fiddle. Um, I really love playing those instruments. Uh, the, the, the effect on like my personal taste, uh, of music has been deeply impacted by film. I listen to like tons of old time and, uh, other folk music and things directly as a result of my time at film. That's the kind of music I play. Uh, and so I try and play some of that. I try and play either the banjo or the fiddle for my daughter every single day. And I am extremely looking forward to a day when she can hold one of those instruments and wants to, to give it a crack. And, uh, if, uh, if the day comes when I'm, you know, packing her instruments into the car and she's about to drive off to New Mexico, uh, that'll, that'll be great. That'll, that'll be excellent. Do you want to nominate anyone to be on the show? Yeah. So, uh, I would recommend Andrew Garner for one. And also Graham Nelson. I think uh, both of them had had really interesting experiences at Philmont. Um, Andrew Garner. When I think of him, I, I think of you know in in the backcountry. There's there's a lot of good uh, musicians, and I think vocal talent certainly exists in the backcountry, but it's it's less common. Like there's more good guitar players in the backcountry than there are good singers. Uh, and Andrew Garner is a very good singer and, and, uh, I got to work with him. I got to play music with him and, you know, I, I have seen the man really move an audience with his voice. Uh, I, I have recordings of our time together that are, are like one of my treasures. Uh, and so I think chatting with him about that, about some of the music at film on about his experiences would probably be really interesting. Speaking of music, just throwing it out there. What song to you like speaks film on like in your head when you think of like a song? I mean, one of one of the classics that I think a lot of people would say would be uh, the mountain. I love that song. I th- there's there's a few other some like classic hymns uh, are are things that I think of. Like, uh, will the circle be unbroken? Is one that I think of, and specifically as I think of that, we uh, so that's it's just a beautiful song on its own. Um, but also in 2010 in Pueblano, we tried to make a funky version of it, like like we we really syncopated it and like did some interesting things to the music and like try to have the funk remix of this like very sorrowful mournful hymn about about your mother passing away um we, we you know we weren't trying to like like make it funny but we we're just trying to make it really interesting and something new and so uh that i regularly think of that funkified version of will the circle <laughs> be unbroken now as i'm as i'm playing music do you have any like piece of filmont memorabilia that's really meaningful to you i've been described as a filmont nerd uh, and, and specifically I was described that way when I showed somebody this item, um, on my finger right now, I'm wearing a wedding ring and my wedding ring has etched into it the tooth of time. 
And uh, specifically, not not just that, but it was etched into it by Iron John Logan, who you should also interview for your show, by the wow, way. Wow, that's I cool. Said his name yeah, as well. that's um, super I, cool. Yeah, he runs a forge, I think, in Michigan, yep. where he will make custom pieces for you if, if you want. And turns out he can do jewelry. It's a beautiful rendition of the Tooth of Time on this ring. And so I wear it every day. I look at the tooth on my finger every day. I've worn that ring on the tooth. I had my tooth ring on the tooth, which was great. Um, and so that's that's one thing. Another uh, is I, I have some, I mean, where I'm sitting right now while we record, I have like Philmont stuff around me. I have, I think like most staff do. I have like my map on the wall over there. I have a big picture of the tooth. I have some patches, one patch for each camp I worked in and like my stack of staff patches and that sort of thing. But one thing that I have that I really treasure because it's bespoke, it's unique, is uh, there was somebody in 2010 who was a good artist, like like line drawing artist who came through and visited us in Poblano. Um, I guess had a good time with us, thought that we were fun and drew this like large picture of me climbing a tree in like full interps and yanking a lightning bolt out of the sky. It's an amazing hand-drawn picture. Yes, it's incredible. And so That's... it's framed and it's sitting on the wall right over here. And I, I absolutely treasure that. Uh, and so my deepest apologies, I don't remember the name of the person who drew it. And I feel terrible about that. But just know whoever you are out there that I still have it. It is framed on my wall and I treasure this drawing. Yeah. I think you're going to have to send us a picture and I'll share it with your episode. Cause now I really need to see it. <laughs> sure. I can <laughs> do that. Okay. Uh, those are cool. Those are two really cool things. Okay, Zach, let's wrap it up with the quintessential 11th essential question. Do you have an 11th essential? So I do. And for me, it's an instrument. Um, as I said, I love sitting on the porch. I love being in the back country. And the best thing to have with me there is a banjo or a fiddle, just, just sitting on a rocking chair, uh, tanking away on the instrument while I watch the sun go past. I do. There is one more thing that I think uh, that I, I might be a good answer for the 11th essential. In 2010 and 2011, I hiked a laptop and some like high quality microphones into the backcountry and recorded our staffs uh, playing all the songs that we did in our shows. And uh, those recordings, I, I absolutely treasure. I mean, every, every time now when I'm going back to Philmont and I, I always come from Denver when I'm driving and I'm, I get on that junction from Highway 64 to Highway 25, I always play the music that we recorded in the backcountry together. Um, and it's, that's, that's like my happy place, approaching Philmont, listening to uh, these recordings that we have. The, the one other thing I can think of is if if anybody out there is interested in 2011, we, we tried to follow in the tradition of uh, several camp staffs before us. And we wrote a musical show for our, our camp that was Crater Lake that summer. Uh, and there's still a recording of it on YouTube. So if anybody wants to watch that, uh, it's it's still out there. Thank you so much for being on the show. I hope you guys. Yeah, I just wish you all the best with new parenthood and. Um, it'd be great to see you out there this summer if that happens. But um, just thank you so much for your insights and and all of your passion for for Philmont. Yeah, thank you very much for for running the podcast and having me on it. Schomburg, I told you, a man will work like a mule, but you have to treat him like a man. 
hate your guts. I wish you would die. But I'll take my foot off your throat to keep the dream alive. I won't call you friend. Your ills won't make me cry. But together the two of us can make this company thrive. I was not there for you. I did not reach for yours. But our hands were joined fast. Circumstances course. I will stand by your side. All men are my brother. Together we shall abide. I will know your name. I will stand by your side. All men are my brother. Together we shall abide. I will know your name. I will stand by your side. All men are my brothers. Together we shall abide. Together we shall 